please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 as we continue our look through this letter from the Apostle Paul to his disciple Timothy. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 4. Before we do that, let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you help us with it. Again, we are weak and frail. We are prone to wander. We are prone to take your words and add to them, divide them, twist them. And so, Lord, convict us of our sin. Show us the truth of your word, how we as a church ought to behave, how we might glorify you in a dying world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read this text this week, I thought of this idea of dividing the truth and what that meant. And it made me think of when I was a kid. And you remember that point as a child when you realize that your parents don't have a common brain. Like they're actually two separate individuals and they don't make these common decisions. And they make mistakes even. I remember that point very vividly. Oh, my parents are capable of making mistakes. I think we all have those, as parents, we all have those moments where we're so overloaded that we tend to just say things. Maybe we don't even realize what we're saying. I remember when I was a kid, one particular instance, uh, my mother, uh, bless her soul, had to raise animals out in the wilderness. And uh, one one of us said, can we paint our nails on the couch? And she said, sure, whatever, go ahead. She probably wasn't even thinking or hearing what we had said. You know, we didn't, uh, she didn't obviously hear. She just wanted us to go away and maybe do our own thing for a while. And then the smell of nail polish, of course, began to permeate the house. And the nail polish itself began to permeate our nice couch. And um, you can just see where that's going. I very vividly remember that memory, uh, not from being a parent. I've never let my children do anything like that, of course. Um, no, we've all done similar things. We all understand that. And remember when you were a kid and you realized this about your parents, right, that um, that they make mistakes. They're not always thinking on all cylinders. And maybe you can even ask one one thing, and if they say no, you could probably go to the other one and ask them, and get away with it, right? Because when one says no, the other might just say yes. Nobody's ever done that in here before, right? Because they aren't all one brain, and their brains are fried a lot. And so that, that's when you can work your magic. Uh, we all understand that, right? Of course, we remember getting caught in that. Uh, it's not good because your parents, even though they're not one brain, they do talk to one another when you don't see them. Yes, they do. And that was some of the worst trouble that I'd ever got in, I think. Why? What was the fault? What was the problem? What was I doing? I was attempting to divide something that isn't meant to be divided. They may not have been the same brain, but they were on the same team. When it came to us as children, when it came to the way that things were going on in our household... Um, and we understand that as parents now. We, you know, we defend our spouse's position no matter what because we are on the same team with them. When our children attempt to manipulate that, we strike out at them in vengeance because they cannot divide that which shouldn't be divided. And so in our text today, we're going to see this, uh, this false teaching, more on false teaching, and the teaching is attempting 
to divide the messages of the Old and the New Testaments. We know that Christ is at the center of the connection between the two, right? We, we constantly go over that here, that he is at the center of that connection. He is the keeper of the Old Covenant. He is the object of the New Covenant. We receive the benefits of the Covenant of Grace because of the work and the life of Jesus Christ. So when we attempt, then, as people who are constantly trying to divide things, when we attempt to fulfill the conditions of the covenant of works, the first covenant, in order to gain favor with God, what are we basically doing? We're attempting to divide that which Christ put together through his work on earth, through his death on the cross. Remember, all false teachings are doing what? They're attempting to undermine the nature of God and or his word. And so in the passage today, we're going to see this going on. We're going to see how it was managed in the early church and how we should learn from them and manage it in our own lives as well. From that, I want to consider two main ideas, forbidding what God allows and then receiving what God made good. And so with that, let's read the text today. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. So real quickly, just some background. Where were we last week? Well, if you'll remember last week, the passage, uh, chapter 3, 14 through 16, called us to, to know how the church ought to behave, how we must behave as a church. The church is to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth. Remember that. that we, the meaning there that we are grounded in the truth of God and we as the church are then to hold it up. The truth of his word. We don't select specific parts. Just like a child shouldn't set his parents against one another. Picking words from one and using them against the other. The scriptures are one. There's no such thing as the New Testament church or the Old Testament God. The Bible is completed and undivided. To divide it is to take away from God's word. Which is a great sin. It represents that shepherd that we read about in John chapter 10. The false shepherd that would jump the fence to, in order to get to the flock. Rather than, and to, to attempt to lead the sheep astray. Rather than entering by the door. Who is our Lord Jesus Christ. His instructions last week. Paul's instructions for us last week. About behaving and holding the truth up. Send us forward then into this week. The first word we read from this new chapter is the word 
now. Well, what does this do for us? It should orient us. We don't need a, a Greek language education to hear that even in the English. That now that we've heard this, now let's do this. We understand that in today's passage, and really everything from this point forward, should be understood in light of what Paul's told us in the preceding three verses. And so with that, let's look at the first point, forbidding what God allows. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith. What does he mean by this? Well, I think the, the words that we, want to, that we want to focus on here are in the later times. What is meant by the later times? Without going into a long exegesis of the later times or the last days, the, you see this language all throughout the New Testament. These are the days after Christ has ascended into heaven. These are the days that Paul and Timothy were living and writing in, and these are the days that we live in now. We are living in them. Timothy was living in them. And so then we stand together. This isn't a particular time that they were looking at then, and it's no longer applicable to us now. We have to understand it that way. We aren't looking toward a day when folks will depart from their faith. We know that, right? It's happening right now. It's been happening since those very first days in the church. This is the, I mean, this is a concept um, for a Sunday school class, I think, rather than a sermon, this idea of the last days, the latter times or later times. Uh, but suffice it to say, Jesus' coming obviously triggers something going on. From the point that he comes, there's going to be something different from that point forward. And it triggered this idea of the last days. And his return will signify what then? The last day. When he finally comes to judge the dead and the alive according to what they have done. Thankfully what we have done again is tied up in the works of what he did, our Lord Jesus, or we will be doomed. Uh, And so why will these people depart? Why will they depart from their faith? Well, It says that they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. How are these evil things able to teach? You ever thought about that? We're... How are these deceitful spirits and these demons, which are spiritual beings, they're not physical, um, how are they able to teach? Do they inhabit the children of God? No, we know that that's not going on because we know that our Lord Jesus inhabits us. And so we, we are not afraid of some spirit taking us over and teaching us. So how do they get the word out? If you listen to some, they write on the foggy mirror in your bathroom. Uh, But what's really going on here, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, that's how they're teaching. What does this mean? These false teachers who are leading the church astray, who are hard in their hearts, their consciences are seared, they see the truth of God, they know the truth of God, and they reject it anyway because they hate God. God. This is exactly like the one they follow, right? The demons and the evil spirits, Satan himself. What do they attempt to do with this? They attempt to lead the people of God astray, much like their father, the devil, the one who is the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. He knows the truth of his demise, 
That's what makes Satan so irrational. He knows the truth of his demise, yet he continues to gather followers as if he has a chance to win. And so this is what these false teachers are doing as well. Let's not attempt to limit this to some kind of Satan worshiping or anything odd like that. The children of the devil are any that aren't the children of God. Remember, we are dealing, we're only dealing with two sides here. It's impossible to straddle the line that separates the true, the two. We even were once enemies with God because we were children of the enemy at enmity with God because we were of the seed of the serpent. The work of Jesus shined the light on us, called us out of darkness. We didn't somehow free ourselves from Satan's grasp because we somehow came to the truth on our own. We loved his embrace before the Spirit worked redemption in our hearts and souls and caused us to love the embrace of Jesus instead. And so notice then the nature of their teaching. What are they doing? What is the teaching that is so wrong here? Well, they forbid marriage. What's wrong with that? Nothing. God said it was good. Marriage is great. Something that God said was good from the garden. And now these teachers are saying, no, it's not good. You should not do that. Sounds like Satan himself, right? Trying to twist the words of God. And then all of a sudden we get to this thing. They require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Well, this one's a bit tougher, right? Because we all know that Israel, the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament was forbidden to eat certain things for a time. And we know that, so now we're, we're at this point, well, is Paul now trying to divide the Old and New Testaments? How should we do this? Well, let's look at this concept because this is important for us. <clears throat> well, why did God ask them to not partake of pork and shrimp and that sort of thing? Well, again... Lots going on here. It deserves a lot more time. But I want to sum it up by saying that Israel became a nation in the time when the rest of the world was decidedly idolatrous. All right? There wasn't a time when there was this little group that were worshiping God, and, uh, or there was a big group worshiping God, and the rest of the small bit of the world was worshiping uh, all these idols. No. The time was when no one was worshiping the one true God. Very few even worshiped the one true God. And then God, what did he do all the way back in Genesis? He came down and he chose a nation from him, for himself from where? From among the idolaters. In Abraham, remember? He, he, Abraham was worshiping other gods. God came down and said, go to the place I will show you. The rest is history, right? From that, he created a people who looked and acted differently then than any other nation. How are they to do that? How are you to separate yourselves if you're in this, this vast wilderness? How are you to separate yourselves from the other nations? Well, it was these food laws. It was these cleanliness laws. These ceremonial laws, we kind of sum them all up by calling them that. The civil laws of Israel that made Israel a nation, and Israel as a nation, you should follow these things. This is what set Israel apart from the other nations. It made them Jewish rather than Gentile. This is where they were able to draw the line. 
this was good for the nation of Israel because it represented those who followed after the true God versus those who followed after idols. And so then when Jesus came, what did he do? Well, he said he came to fulfill the law. See this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says this, he didn't come to abolish the law, he didn't come to take it away, but he came to fulfill it. What does that mean? These, these laws about not eating pork and not eating shrimp and all these other cleanliness laws. What does it mean that he came to fulfill them? Well, now Israel are all of those who believe in the name of Jesus. What does it say at the very beginning of the book of John? Who can become a child of God? Not just people of Israel. It even tells us that's not why they're children of God. Not according to blood or the will of man but according to believing upon the Son of Man who gives us the right to become children of God. By believing in his name, we are sons and daughters of God through adoption of the Father. We become joint heirs with Jesus through his work. What did he do? Well, he followed every single one of those laws. And in doing so, because of the embodiment of what they represented, he was the one who was able to make one clean, not abstaining from eating pork or shrimp or whatever. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews is, that's what this book is about, by the way. Uh, I'd encourage you to read Hebrews if you're struggling with this idea, but I think this, these couple of verses that I'm about to read really sum this whole idea up. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or make one holy for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. This just sums it all up. So what happens then when you say, or when those people back then in the time of Timothy and Paul were saying, no, we still have to follow these laws concerning cleanliness. We still must follow them. What are you doing then to what Jesus did? You are stripping him of what he came to do. You are setting the New Testament and the Old Testament at odds with one another. You're creating a tension in the heart of the believer that was never meant to be. It's the same as circumcision. I think we could go on and on with the different things in the Bible. Well, circumcision was an act that represented the removing of the taint of sin from the one who passed the seed to the next generation. What about in Jesus? Well, this isn't needed anymore. And so it's replaced with what? Baptism. 
which represents what Jesus has done. What has he done? He's cleansed us from our sin, not just for males, but for females as well, for all of us. And so then for us, what is at the heart of this false teaching? I think this is important for us. They're essentially saying, no, Jesus, my works are just as good or better than yours. See, look. And you can even imagine someone holding up the fact that they've never eaten pork or the fact that they uh, went to the priest and got a goat to sacrifice for their sins and holding that up before God and saying, look how good this is. And it's, what does God say that they're holding up? Filthy rags. That's not at all what we should be doing. And it's what we talked about last week during Sunday school, right? The idea that, that people thought that their, their works could somehow save them. It's a heresy as old as the church. It's even older. And when we have to be careful, because when we start to forbid things that God allows, then what will we do? Well, we're going to start to allow things that he forbids. I heard that quote from uh, Pastor Ligon Duncan. It wasn't my own. That when we, we, again, we have to be careful when we start to forbid the things that God allows because then we will allow what he forbids. And I think we've all seen this, right? Folks that are hard-nosed on things that are really easy for us to accomplish but they're real easy on the more besetting sins of our lives. It's easy to convince a church that dancing is wrong because what nobody really wants to dance. But you can't convince them that the divorce rate has to be lower than that of the world. It's easy for a church to say no to alcohol, but easily and secretly say yes to pornography. Again, I don't want to be the accuser here. We're not the accuser. But we have to check ourselves. We must stick to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which says what? Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Which assumes what? That Jesus did the work that you are trying to do. It's in his name that saves you, not your own. If the gospel ever becomes, look at me, Instead of call upon Jesus, we enter the realm that Paul is warning against here. We have to be careful of that, church. And that leads us to the next point, receiving what God made good. And so in the opposite way, then, what are we allowed to do? Well, we are allowed to receive those things that God has made good. And he actually devotes, Paul actually devotes quite a bit of time to this in his other epistles, and it, because it's a major issue, this idea of what is right for people to do, what is right for people to eat, what is right for people to, to say, or how should they worship. And so how do we apply this? <clears throat> well, we just need to be careful in the things that we say no to, and we need to be careful in how we might affect the consciences of other believers. Paul talks at length of this in Romans 14, and you, you, you're familiar with the terminology. I won't go there encourage you to look at that on your own, but the terminology of the weaker brother. We've all heard of this concept, right? That the idea that those who struggle in these areas that maybe we shouldn't struggle in, that Paul talks about them being the weaker brother. Um, to say that there are times when we'll contact those, again, that aren't as secure in their Christian liberty as maybe we are. We need to be gentle with them on how we express that liberty. And there are at times, too, then, 
on the other side of the coin that we are going to be that weaker brother. And we need that same gentle spirit then applied to us. We could go on and on and on about what this means and what applications there are to the church. But I think it's important for us to just simply say, let's not easily forbid those things that God allows. And it's okay then to allow the things that he's not forbidding within reason. Is it wise? Is it worthy of praise? And there's lists for us to understand there in Scripture. Paul tells us how we should receive these things with thanksgiving, for it is made holy with the word and with prayer. And so let's be careful then. If the word doesn't forbid it in Christ, then it's not forbidden for us. But again, this requires wisdom, a lot of wisdom, which he adds then with prayer. I think if we wrestle with what is right, we should go to God in prayer, who is faithful to answer. In many cases, we are free to receive or reject those things. I think that's part of what Christian liberty is all about. What one person is free to do, another person is not free to do. And guess what? That's okay. Marriage is good. It shouldn't be forbidden, but it's also not required either. I think we understand this concept. The one thing that these false teachers were trying to forbid... It's a good thing, but it's not required of believers to be married. You know, Paul talks about that at length in 1 Corinthians, this idea of what it's like to be married, what it's, what, what, how married people should behave, well, how single people should behave as well. It's a good thing. You know, the same thing with like eating things like pork and shrimp and whatever else. Just go to any of those laws. Uh, if you don't want to eat them, that's fine. But you're free to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. However, at any time when we begin to impose that liberty on another believer, I'm doing this, I think it's good. Oh, you don't think it's good? You're a bad person then. Anytime that becomes the issue, what are we doing? We're creating a law, right? We're adding to God's word. We're adding to the gospel even. Saying well, you have, your, your Christian liberty has to match mine or probably don't love Jesus. Well, anytime we do that, we are these false teachers that Paul warns us about. We are setting the gospel on its head. And we have to be careful with that. We're all guilty of this, brothers and sisters. It's important for us to even examine our own lives, help us, help one another to examine our lives as well as we come to, to, come to grips with these ideas. So quickly, in conclusion... I think the important idea here is at any time we would add or take away from the Scripture, what are we doing? We're dividing that which God made whole. Christians, then, let us uphold the whole Word of God. Let us set at liberty each other to follow it perfectly. We are free to follow His Word. Within the confines of His Word, there is absolute freedom. There's not slavery. We've been set free from that. We are free. And so in those places where there is no condemnation, let's not create any. But in those places where the law is clear, let us then uphold that law with the exact same zeal that we would go about our liberty. 
It's for the health and the well-being of the church. And that's the church that Jesus Christ died to save. So then let us hold up the truth, be a pillar that the world looks to for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we wrestle with these truths, we understand this is no easy issue. We could probably sit here all day and talk about the different applications and how they apply to the various situations in our lives. And so, Lord, we beg for wisdom. We do not ever want to lead another brother or sister astray in what we consider liberty. And so, Lord, help us to be sensitive to that. But, Lord, also help us to remember that there is no condemnation. The things that you have made holy are holy. The things that you have called good are good. And so, Lord, help us to rest in that. We are thankful, most of all, that you looked at us and you said, You are good. You are holy. Not because of what we did, but because of what you did for us. You became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And we are thankful for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.